All right, what's up to all the cinephiles out there? Welcome to the Marquee Spotlight, coming to you from the always sunny Portland, Oregon. I am Spencer Bailey, and I am, of course, here with my amazing co-host, Chelsea Burnett. What's happening, Chelsea? Hey, let's do this. I'm so happy to be here. Awesome. Today's spotlight topic, uh, we're going to be discussing uh, mental health and how it's depicted in films uh, with a guest today. Uh, We're really looking forward to this. I I think this is going to be an interesting episode. I think so too. I I can't wait to dive in. Great. So as always, we like to start with some news and uh, let's get into that real quick. First thing I wanted to go over, so we said in I think our first episode, we were both really pumped about um, the Knives Out sequel. We both really liked the first one. I loved that original story Mm -hmm. with a deep murder mystery with a lot of fun characters and famous faces. Um, And I figured there was going to be sequels. And we talked about Netflix got the rights to the next two. And I feel like every day there's a new person cast for the for the sequel and makes us all go wow i'm getting more and more excited who are you most excited for i think it's edward norton who i think was the first one that uh, they announced but i think he is like i mean what can he do i think he's gonna add a lot to the the the, just all around with his acting ability Mm -hmm. his ability to deliver lines um, he's already my pick to be the killer, <laughs> but uh, I guess we'll see what happens. How about you? Um, Edward Norton is a good pick. That uh, makes me think of, I just recently rewatched uh, Primal Fear. Have you seen that movie? It's been a long time, but yeah. all time famous twist. Mm-hmm. Def- definite twist. And um, he plays a, a great killer. So if, if he is the killer, uh, watch out. Um, Probably the pick that I'm most excited for is Kate Hudson because I think she's due like a little higher caliber project. Uh, She hasn't really had one of those in a while. And I think she's um, really charismatic and has a great screen presence. And she was so big in the early 2000s. And I feel like she just hasn't had something that has really been able to showcase um, her talent. And I hope that... um, I hope Ryan Johnson will be able to kind of harness her power in um, in the best way. I also am really stoked that Katherine Hahn is in it because I love her as well. And I feel like she makes everything she's in better. Man, she is like a comet that sputtered out at the beginning but kept pushing and is now just rocketing towards Earth. I swear, like... She was always popping up places and you're always like, who is that? Mm -hmm. Who is this woman? And Mm -hmm. why is this little part she has drawing all of my attention away? And she's so good in Parks and Rec. And, you know, (laughs) oh, my God. And like all her new product projects are getting so much attention, so much positive attention. I haven't seen WandaVision, but I heard she is just the bright shining star in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so far we've got Dave Bautista, who... He's been doing, I mean, I'd say out of all of the wrestler turned actors, I, he's got to be the most well-rounded. I mean, everybody loves The Rock, but The mm-hmm. Rock kind of just does one thing. Exactly. And John Cena is more of a, on, on a comedy track. Um, yes. Sorry to cut you off. No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Not at all. And then, so Dave Batista, Catherine Hunter, as we said, Edward Norton, as we said, Kate Hudson, as we said, uh, Janelle Monae. Mm. Just- uh, Moonlight. I would love to see her in... 
Oh, she's also great in Hidden Figures. But yeah, yeah, yeah she's a she's wonderful. One talent. of the most all around talented people mm-hmm. like in the country easily. She just does it all. And uh, Leslie Odom Jr. coming off his Oscar nomination for One Night Miami. Gotta feel like they're gonna add more. I, I, I mean, getting them one by one is cool. But when the first one came out and we just got this whole this movie poster and you're just counting all the famous people on the poster you're like what is this so mm. i just i have high hopes i have yes. high hopes that it is going to be just as good as the first one and i just hope they find a way to bring like stanfield back maybe he keeps transferring it, yeah <laughs> maybe so <laughs> uh so the next story we're really excited about and this one just came in i think yesterday and uh, i think we we're going to talk about something else but we we called Notable. And we're going to talk about this instead. Henry Cavill has just signed on to star in a Highlander reboot. This is so brilliant. I think it's a great casting choice. Absolutely. Highlander reboot is something I've been really wanting for a long time. Because I think Highlander is such an interesting concept. And man, those are bad movies. (laughs) They're really bad. And I know the first one is like a cult classic and there's things to like, but... Oh, it's not good. I mean, they cast a French actor to play a Scot, a Scottish right. Highlander, and cast the Scotsman to, <laughs> to play, play a Spaniard. Spaniard who's really an Egyptian, and then Clancy Brown, who's playing this completely unhinged villain. But now all I can think about him is Mr. Krabs and SpongeBob. <laughs> I mean, there's so much potential with that story and the theme of who wants to live forever, the Queen score. Uh, the TV show was much better than the movies, in my opinion. But I thought, let's take this concept, make a modern movie, and what a great choice. Do you know yeah. yet who's produced, like, where this is going to premiere? I don't. Okay. I, I, I get the vibe that it's going to be a theatrical premiere. Mm-hmm. But in today's world with the streaming rights, um, yeah, I'm sure you saw that when Amazon's trying to pick up MGM, but the big roadblock is that the uh, the Broccoli family is like, we are not debuting James Bond films on streaming. Mm-hmm. It's their contractual right. So this stuff going to really start coming to a head. Uh, but uh, I'm really excited to see how this happens. Henry Cavill so entertaining. I mean, The Witcher was not a great show, but I just kept watching it because I just really like Henry he's Cavill. A, uh, he's the highlight of that show for sure. I think he, um, he has a real um, star quality that I don't, well, I, I can't really say because I never saw the Superman movies. I haven't really even seen him play Superman, but I've I I haven't really heard like the best things other than he just looks like Superman, which is great. Um, but I think he's done other projects that have really showcased how uh, versatile he is, and I think he has. I think he knows how to be funny. He can also play a brute. He's got it all. So yeah. he's really good in The Man from Uncle. If you haven't seen mm-hmm. that. Um, that man's chin could bring countries to its knees. Too, and he can build gaming computers. By yeah, himself, he is a so. huge PC gamer. Mm. It's crazy. Mm. Like, so uh, super excited. I can't wait to see. I don't know if they're going to redo the original movie or just completely blow it up, uh, but I'd be really interested to see. This could be a really fun movie. Yeah. So, uh, so one final note on a somber note. Uh, this week we said goodbye to... Uh, Super, super funny, Charles Grodin, 86 years old, so it's a good life, you know. Most people, I think, particularly in 
maybe our generation really knew him as the dad in the Beethoven movies. That's, and that was that's cert- me. Yeah. <laughs> that was certainly the biggest paycheck he ever got, I think. But he had a well-established, well-respected career as a, a comedic actor throughout the seventies and eighties. And uh, one of the all time great dry deadpan, make you feel stupid uh, comedians um, really uh, made some, some, maybe not super well-known movies, but really good movies. And not just that, just cameo. He has a really quick cameo in So I Married an Axe Murderer, and it's one of the funniest scenes in the entire movie. And he's in the movie for like five seconds. Um, he's also really well-known for his famous uh, late-night show appearances, mm. uh, where he would usually go off script, and you weren't sure if the host was in on the joke or okay with him doing that. Um I think my all-time favorite moment was uh, early 90s. Madonna was at the height of her obnoxiousness, and she went on Letterman and really upset Dave. And she brought him a pair of her underwear and handed it to him and then was looking at the boom mic and talking about how it uh, resembled, shall we say, phallic objects. And she was just really obnoxious. You could tell Dave was so annoyed. Well, the next night, Charles Grodin comes on, and he says... You know, I don't get to ch- watch every episode, but I do try to check into the show just to see, make sure there's not something I need to be aware of before I come on. So I'm, I'm supposed to give you this. He hands Dave a sock, and then he looks up at the boom mic and goes, oh my, look how big it is. Like completely, not even acknowledging Madonna, but totally making fun of her. Guy was so great. Oh, I, I um, looking through his IMDb, I thought I had seen more movies of his than I actually have. Like, I think I'm ashamed to admit that I've only seen the Beethoven movies and then Rosemary's Baby because he played the doctor in Rosemary's Baby in a great role. Um, But I will certainly be seeking out Midnight Run. And um, I also really want to see him in Ishtar because I was also just listening to another podcast, Blank Check. Shout out. I love that podcast. And they just did an Elaine May uh, series, and um, they talk about how Charles Grodin is one of the best parts of Ishtar. And um, I, I, just speaking from my Beethoven uh, fandom, I, I'm a big fan of Beethoven's Second, the sequel, and I recently rewatched it a few months ago, and I definitely think Charles Grodin is bringing, um, and Bonnie Hunt, I have to give them both a lot of credit, I think they're bringing like a certain like s- level of sophistication to the type of like improv comedy that they're doing in those movies that you may not be expected in a family comedy, and they also have great chemistry, and I will always love him because that movie holds a... A special place in my heart. Yeah, I think the two people out there, if you want to check out more, um, I've never seen the whole thing. My father has been ranting at me for years to see it, but the original Heartbreak Kid, Ben Ben Stiller. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Ben Stiller made a remake in the two thousands, but uh, it, it, it Sybil Shepherd's in it too, I believe. It's really hard to find; uh, like it's not streaming anywhere. But yes, Midnight Run was a constant in the Bailey household. Uh, we watched it all the time. Um, if you're not familiar with the movie, Robert De Niro is a bounty hunter uh, who had to pick up Charles Grodin because uh, he skipped out on bail. Um, their back and forth is really hilarious. It established Robert De Niro as someone who could play more, dy- you know, he didn't just play serious parts, uh, more made his career more well-rounded, but uh, 
Charles Grodin is so funny in that movie. And I think my favorite part is he's constantly trying to bribe Robert De Niro throughout the movie to let him go. And my favorite scene in the entire movie is uh, they just, they're being chased by another bounty hunter and the FBI. And they just get away from the FBI, lose their car. And now they're walking through the Southwest somewhere. It's hot. Charles Grodin's handcuffed. De Niro's pulling him by the arm. And Charles Grodin just starts telling him about this potato dish. And you're like, where is this going? And then he says, you know, he tries to bribe him by saying he could buy him as many potatoes as he might desire. Why he worded that way. I mean, that's why he's a comedic genius. It's I would quote that scene all the time in my dad. So Charles Grodin, thank you so much for the laughs and uh, goodbye wherever you are. Are you familiar with a dish uh, of a potato dish, a uh, Leonese potato? It's a uh, it's a kind of a fried potato, but it's got like an onion in it. It's it's quite delicious. It uh, it really goes beautifully with uh, steak, uh, chops, uh, you know, hamburger, cheeseburger, any your your meat dishes. It's just a uh, you know I have I have enough money to buy you hey, look. as much Leonese potatoes just, as you ever. Just shut the fuck up, will you please? All right, we're back. Okay, so as we said at the top of the program, uh, today's spotlight topic is going to be mental health and how it's depicted in movies. Uh, for that, we have a very, very special guest today, Lacey Burnett. Hi, Lacey. Hi, Spencer. Would you like to tell everyone who you are? Um, my name is Lacey. I am a social worker. I work in the mental health field. And um, also, side note, I'm Spencer's girlfriend and Chelsea's sister-in-law. Whoop, whoop. Yeah. It's all about who you know, right? Exactly. It's all about who you know. Exactly. Uh, I And I do want to say, I want to elaborate. You also, particularly for where this conversation is about to go, in your career, you spent several years working at an inpatient psych ward as well. Yeah. Um, I think that my passion um, in the mental health field is working with folks with severe and persistent mental illness. So diagnoses such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. I think that these diagnoses are very misunderstood, stigmatized, and um, the people suffering from these conditions are so vulnerable. And um, besides them being like fascinating diagnoses, um, the people are underserved. They are, um, mistreated by society at large and uh, often live disproportionately short lives because of the lack of adequate treatment and um, violence toward them. So yeah, it's kind of a area that I'm pretty passionate about. And that's what I was about to say. It's not just your job, it's just everyday life. You're always, you're reading articles, you're looking at this stuff in movies all the time. And that's kind of how, why we had this idea. You know, I said, if you'd ever want to be in the show, what you going to do? And you said this, and I thought it was a really great idea. Um, now when we were getting together, um, what movies we wanted to talk about. So currently in your profession, you're working with, with elderly people, end of life, um, you know, many of them dealing with things like dementia and stuff. You didn't want to go that route. And, you know, I figured we'd be talking about the father or still Alice, something like that. And you said that's not the route you wanted to go. And you also didn't want to go down a sociopath or psychopathic road either. So no Gone Girl, no Psycho, movies like that. Uh, tell, tell, tell us a little bit about why you 
stayed away from those avenues, went more towards what we're going to talk about. All right. So The Father and Still Alice are both movies about dementia, um, specifically Alzheimer's dementia. That is a neurological condition. There is crossover. You can, I guess you could call it neuropsychiatric condition. Mm. Um, but by and large, that's a brain condition that is organic, meaning it's um, caused by the, the, the organ, the brain, um, like deteriorating. It's, it's, you could consider dementia to be just like heart failure. You could call dementia brain failure. Um, so that's, it's a bit different than mental illness as um, it's kind of understood within the mental health profession. And then similarly, not really similarly, actually, um, you referenced um, psychopathic and sociopathic like personality traits, those are those are not actually currently considered conditions in like the diagnostic and statistical manual, which is like the psychiatrist bible. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, no, they're they are um, those are old, outdated um, terms. They would now be considered. Um, they'd fall under the the umbrella um, of antisocial personality disorder, mm-hmm. and those are personality disorders. Which, yes, that's considered mental illness, but it's a different type of mental illness. Um, a personality disorder has to do with some how somebody um, relates to themselves and the world around them. It's often rooted in childhood trauma. So relevant, but um, I also don't like the hype around psychopathic um, and sociopathic, you know, personalities. I, I think it's sometimes two-dimensional and um, reductive. And um, portrays people as monsters, where it's actually super uncommon. I've only met a few people in my life that really fully qualify as having antisocial personality. And yeah, it's it's kind of unsettling when you meet somebody with that diagnosis because they really, truly lack empathy. But it's not common. And so I get kind of sick of it being portrayed in film all the time because it's just not as um, relevant as other mental health conditions such as mood disorders, you know, depression, anxiety, um, or, you know, things such as like schizophrenia. So I'm more interested in talking about those. Perfect. Makes total sense. I thought it was a great answer. Yes, I know. Yeah. Can I go to your TED talk, Lacey? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, so you and I kind of got together to pick the movies we wanted to talk about. And I think there was a couple that we were like, this is a no brainer. We were both on the same page. And there was a couple that you were really adamant about doing that I thought were interesting picks. And then the first movie we're going to talk about, I feel like kind of fell on our lap. We were looking for a movie to watch and you're like, I haven't seen that yet. And I said, well, by all means, let's go ahead and watch it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Um, So the first movie we're going to talk about is of course, Joker, the movie that came out recently, the origin story of the villain starring Joaquin Phoenix. Not um, the Joker, just Joker. Just Joker, <laughs> just Joker. I got to get it right. They'll come after us. Um, so, yeah, Lacey, tell me, why did this seem, I mean, it kind of seems like an obvious pick for what we're talking about, but what was it about that movie that made you go, this is one we're going to talk about? Well, yeah, the director was clearly trying to make a statement about mental health in America or I mean Gotham, I suppose it was definitely an attempt at a narrative about what happens when 
someone is failed by the system. There are a few things that he got right, the director. There are a lot of things that he got way wrong and I think really worsened the stigma surrounding severe mental illness. We'll talk about that. Let's. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit of what you thought they did right, particularly for our conversation. What's interesting is, you know, he starts the movie dealing with, a, a, you know, a state assigned social worker that's mm-hmm. providing him, helping to provide him with state provided uh, medication. Yeah, I can't say I loved how they depicted the social worker. She was super burnt out and uh, jaded. But that said, a lot of social workers are. Um, I don't know. It was just kind of sad. Uh, she also didn't seem to really believe in the treatment that she was providing. It didn't seem like she had a whole lot of hope for Arthur Fleck, the the main character. Well, I guess he is the the protagonist. Yes, I I would say he is. Yeah. Can I ask you a quick question, Lacey, about that and his in terms of Arthur's interaction with his social worker? Because I think it's not in the first scene, but it's I think in their second meeting they have when he says, like, you never really listened to me. Um, am I getting that right? Mm-hmm. Does he have a moment like yeah, that? Yeah, he says yeah. that. Yeah. And yeah, she she's not. So this was what what decade was this? The 60s, the 70s? I think it's the 70s. So back then, mental health was very um, top down, authoritative and. Um, I think the training of social workers was um, similar to the training of all mental health professionals at the time where they were seen as the experts and the client was seen as um, not really an active participant in the treatment process, but somebody who uh, received the treatment, you know, the the consumer. Mm. And um, she didn't really engage him a lot in terms of like listening to what he had to say. She was, she was clearly like, directing him um and trying to like redirect him away from certain topics that he was drifting toward um she wasn't really like joining with him is is like we talk that's sort of a term we use in therapy is joining with the client is um attempting to look at the world through their eyes and um kind of view them in some ways as the expert in their own lives because they are she wasn't doing that um kind of all the the bad things that we associate with social workers she was embodying, which is, um, which was kind of sad for me to see. Did, um, just a question for both of you. Um, but I, I was wondering if you felt that the turn that Arthur made in the movie into this more of a psychopathic behavior, um, came on really quickly and, uh, was a little jarring. I I remember when the movie started thinking he was much more of a sympathetic, uh, very, uh, just sad character. And by the end, um, I thought he'd made like a full 180 that didn't really, uh, track for me. No, it didn't really track. But I think what the movie was trying to do was because that coincided with him stopping his medications, him. So he, for the first third of the movie actually really liked it. Um, he is this really vulnerable guy. Um, so I just I want to say um, that people with severe mental illness, um, di- I'm not saying that he had these diagnoses, but diagnoses such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, severe um, mental health disorders, they are no more violent than the general population. And they're often depicted because there's a lot of 
throughout the movie um, sort of suggestion that Arthur maybe has um, a diagnosis such as schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. And on top of, are they also alluding that he could have had a traumatic brain injury yeah, as well? Yeah, so oh. that, they, that did seem accurate. So uh, his absurd laughing in inappropriate situations, thats there's actually a name for that. It's called pseudo-bulbar affect. Um, and it is generally, it's a neurological condition that's um, generally caused by a traumatic brain injury or a TBI. And um, they do reference in the movie childhood uh, physical abuse and trauma that he experienced. You know, I think an accurate cluster of diagnoses for him would be the pseudobulbar affect, which is a neurological condition, not so much a mental illness. Mm. Although there's crossover. Um, I like the uh, the differentiation. Did I make up that word? <laughs> yeah. The, you're trying to uh, – thank you. You're. I, I like uh, – I'm appreciating that you're trying to point out a difference between neurological conditions and mental uh, illness um, because that's something that I think the lines get blurred a lot and I didn't yeah, always yeah, they uh, do. know about that. Well, one thing I wanted to talk – that's a great segue into talking about actually diagnosing him. Um, and you kind of did a little bit of that with the head injury causing his involuntary laughing. Um, I think the other two things, you know, we observed were obvious depression. And, and of course he's depressed. You know, the opening scene of him making himself smile with his fingers while he's crying, it's just heartbreaking. And I mean, he can't, he's trying so hard to find some positivity in life and he's imagining positivity in life. So I don't know that his depression is, needs any explaining, but uh, clearly having delusion yeah. With the neighbor w- woman and stuff. That was all delusion, right? Yeah, it was a delusion. They were su- That was them suggesting that he had a psycho- some sort of a psychotic illness, which just does not match. Because here's the thing. Somebody with a psychotic illness um, would be very disorganized in their thinking if they were to go off their medications. When he went off his meds, he became devious. Yes. Uh, like, really quickly, too. But his thinking was more clear. He was more organized in his um, thought processes, which that would not happen. And um, became more violent. And like I said, that is not accurate. That's a misportrayal of um, mental health, mental illness and violence. That's There's no association beyond, you know, that in the general population um between mental illness and violence i just want to drive that point home well well, i do love how you point out like he really can't get out of his own way too i mean it's like there's so many things it shows you he never even really builds into this super villain that we know to be the joker right because like when he's run from the cops he kind of just gets away by happenstance i mean he gets hit by a car and and stuff and i i told Lacey one of my favorite things that shows you he really can't get it together is after he shoots robert de niro and clears out the studio, he grabs the camera to make some big sweeping statement, and right in the middle, they cut it off, know. you know, the, uh, the technical difficulties uh, screen. Yeah, also, I I think my, one of the scenes that I found most accurate in the movie is a scene toward the beginning of the movie where he's, he's in his clown get-up holding a sign, and some kids steal his sign. He chases them to try to get the sign back. 
he gets just brutally beaten. That is much, much, much more accurate. That is actually very accurate. People with mental illness are, um, they're targeted. They are super vulnerable to acts of violence. It happens all the time. And also just him being scorned. Um, he, he was socially awkward. He had a hard time um, understanding when he was being mocked or teased. That, that is also something that's a bit more common with mental illness. You're, you're vulnerable. So it sounds to me like overall, Lace, that you feel like a lot of the things they got right were certain ways that he was treated in the world and how a lot of his more um, softer symptoms were, were depicted and where things really went off the rails for you is when he becomes... When he turns bad. Yeah. Yeah. I think the direction they took was just off. And I, I see what they were doing. They were trying to say, this is what happens when, you know, the, it, that, you know, sort of poignant line he says to uh, De Niro toward the end, right before he shoots him, is, you know, this is what happens when society, like, turns their back on someone with mental illness. And um, I think that narrative that they were trying to say is that, like, think they were maybe trying to be sympathetic toward people with mental illness by saying you know that society creates monsters but that's so not true because they are not more violent than the average person yeah people are violent uh to a point including people with mental illness but not to a greater extent all right so i think that maybe if well the joker story wouldn't have worked if they didn't you know have you know his once he stopped taking his meds and lost his services you know sort of turned deviant so obviously they 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 chose to do that but i think more accurate would have been somebody who falls through the cracks in society and and likely dies yeah chelsea do you have any more questions um regarding joker i think just i i i feel because it had to be fit into a comic book story and so often the Batman stories seem to be about how Gotham is this sinister place that's where they had to take the story of the Joker to say society did this to him mm -hmm. and I'm glad that you're trying to remind audiences because I feel when that movie came out everyone was trying to frame it in how can this really fit into our modern day society but it's like well gotham is a fictional city and we need to keep that in mind yeah I but mean, but the system can fail a person yeah and i'm so, glad exactly. the movie is showing that the movie does address that the system it, it's really important how society treats people with mental illness and how the systems in place set up to to help folks with mental illness how well they're working or how well established they are um, those are crucial. So it's just what what they get wrong is what kind of what what happens as a as a consequence if the system fails. Yeah. Also, I just want to point out one line that I did actually really love um, from Arthur Fleck's journal. Uh, it's like the hardest thing about mental illness is that people expect you to act like you're not. Or, yeah, something along those lines. And that rang true for me, and it I think it probably hit home for a lot of people watching the movie. Um, I think that was actually a really beautiful line. It's, it's true. There still is so much stigma 
around mental illness that, um, yeah, there's, it's not socially acceptable to be displaying symptoms of mental illness in, in public settings. Our politicians are still have to hide when they go to therapy for the oh, public yeah. image. Oh, there's, yeah. There's so, so much stigma. Yeah. When, in fact, we're all pretty unbalanced. I know I am. <laughs> and I think these two ladies can attest. Uh, <laughs> so what we want to do, thank you, Lacey, for your thoughts on that. Sure. And uh, what I want to do with all of these movies is is talk, this is a movie podcast, we want to talk about the movie itself uh, after we discuss the mental health stuff. So Joker, of course, uh, directed by Todd Phillips, 68% of Rotten Tomatoes, uh, had a lot more Oscar nominations than I realized. Um, of course, um, Joaquin Phoenix won Best Leading Actor. He deserved it. Um, best Music, I also didn't realize one. Mm. Uh, it lost Best Picture, Directing, Adapted Screenplay, Cinematography, Costumes, Makeup and Hair, Editing, Sound Mixing, and Sound Editing. Didn't realize it was nominated for so much. Yeah. Um, yeah, I got to tell you. So I think I've told, said on the show and I've said to Chelsea, I'm a big comic fan. And what we've gotten in movies in these recent years has been really exciting. And oh, my God, I'm so burnt out. I, I, I don't jump to these superhero movies anymore. But this one was so fascinating. Todd Phillips announces, I've written a Joker's origin story. And I was like, well, that's cool, buddy. But fat chance getting that made. Well, then he got Joaquin Phoenix to join. And I was like, that's interesting. Well, then it got picked up. And I was like, what? And then Robert De Niro signed on. I was like, what is happening? And then when it got released to all the the festivals and it was winning prestigious awards, and I was just like, I'm burnt out on these movies, but I have got to see what is going on with this movie. And I was a bit underwhelmed in the theater when I saw it. I, I felt like... Todd Phillips was trying to make a point about mental health and he did not need to use the Joker as a vehicle for that. It just felt unnecessary. Um, I don't know. Joaquin is amazing in it. Yeah. But I just didn't get a lot out of it. He's the, he's the reason to see the movie. I would say is that performance. I am glad you mentioned the scene when he's crying and forces himself to smile it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. I think um, his best actor uh, award is well-deserved and for like a whole uh, career of work that he's done. Um, but I I was uh, I was kind of bored by the movie. I And it may have just been because it was so built up in the media when it came out that I was thinking Absolutely. it would be a lot more sensational than it really was. And so I was just a little let down. Uh, by it I would say that how Lacey mentioned the first third of the movie I think is your favorite and I agree and I think it goes downhill um, when he stops taking his meds I think it just becomes really um, uh, ham-fisted um, yes. and it's it's trying I think Todd Phillips is trying way too hard to follow in the footsteps of Taxi Driver and King of Comedy and in Martin Scorsese's shoes you took the words right out of my mouth and it like so much influence from those two movies yeah. like an absurd amount there's no wonder De Niro is in the movie mm -hmm. I don't think that was an accident yeah and it's it's it goes beyond homage where it's just kind of uh, it's just trying too hard I think yeah and, and Lacey, one thing that you said when we watched it that I really got a kick out of being such a huge Batman fan was you were really pissed off about how they portrayed Thomas Wayne. Oh, yeah. Didn't like that. I don't know why they needed to portray him as um, an elitist jerk. Um, don't 
think that that really helped the film at all. And in fact, I think it detracted from the... I think it really just detracted from the um, Batman fans' perception. Uh, per, yeah, sure. Perception of the film and accuracy of the kind of Batman story. I think he... Mythos, sort of. Yeah, yeah exactly. Bruce Phillips Wayne. didn't do himself any favors by making a character who has always been a benevolent character, um, making him a, a total asshole. I yeah, I, I remember, didn't really understand that. I walked out of the theaters kind of irritated with that. You know, I, I think the way the Waynes were portrayed in Batman Begins is kind of how I always saw them reading the comics and everything. So, yeah. So, Joker, if you haven't seen it, I mean, watch it. Uh, Joaquin's amazing. There's some cool scenes. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Um, okay, great. Well, let's move on to the next movie. And I thought this was a really fun pick you made, Lacey. And I actually really like this movie. And I think Chelsea does too. And uh, we picked Inside Out, the Pixar movie. Um, because it really is like a, you know, an easygoing but effective way for kids to learn how to really feel their feelings, I would say. But, you know, I'd love to hear... Not just kids. Touche. Good point. Uh, but, yeah, why did that movie... Because you hadn't seen it, but it, it, you picked it, though. Yeah, I'd been wanting to watch it, and I had read articles on it. Um, I really love how it um, personified the characters um, into, like, animated, colorful characters. Um you know, that each symbolized an emotion, joy being the main character. There were, and, and just how it kind of breaks down that the story occurs inside the brain of Riley, the main character, and uh, a transition that she's going to when her parents move um, the family from somewhere in the Midwest all the way out to San Francisco, and she's kind of experiencing, you know, loss and some shock and just grief around um, the loss of what she left behind and difficulty adjusting to the um, kind of her, her new um, her new life. And um, something that well, I'll, I'll get to in a second is um, that she's she's trying to be the happy girl um, the whole time. And I think that really um, prevents her from being able to accurately, or fully process what's happening to her. And that's that's kind of where things start to break down in her mind. Um, but the, the four lessons that I wanted to discuss are, um, the first one was that happiness is not all about joy. Joy is the main character. She's sort of like personified by this like kind of manic pixie type um, She's got the voice of Amy Poehler. She's she's at the controls inside Riley's mind, and um, her goal is to make sure that Riley is always happy. But um, by the end of the film, Joy, like Riley and the audience, um, she learns that there's much, much more to being happy than boundless positivity. So, yeah, in fact, in the film's final chapter, when Joy um, kind of gives up control to some of her fellow emotions particularly sadness, Riley seems to achieve a deeper form of happiness. And I thought that was, that was well played by Disney Pixar. 
they did a really excellent job there. Yeah, so, I think even as an adult, one thing we have to find is you should feel all your feelings. And that's what I took away from this movie. And I think that that's important. And I do think people try to, you know, we heard about it now, especially in like the workplaces, toxic positivity, got to be positive all the time. It's like, that's not normal. You've got to be able to feel everything. Yeah. Happiness and joy are not. So joy is sort of like um, an emotion and happiness is kind of a state of being. Um, And it takes more than joy to create happiness. You have to feel your feelings. You have to process sadness and that kind of leads to like I don't have to go over all four of the main um sort of lessons from inside out but um one of my favorites was that you know sadness is vital to our well-being um shout out to Phyllis shout shout out to (laughs) Phyllis so um er, like early in the film Joy admits that she doesn't understand what sadness is or you know why sadness is in Riley's head you know She's um, she's also not alone at time um, at one time or another. Many of us have probably wondered what purpose sadness serves in our lives. I know that I have. Um, I know that sadness, especially in um, Western culture, is 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 seen as an unnecessary emotion a lot of the time. Um, and the importance or value of sadness is is kind of underplayed. Um, so. I love sadness. I love the character. Um, I love that sadness rather than joy emerges as the hero of the movie. Um, and I especially love some of the scenes where sadness really takes the lead. Um, joy, uh, despite her attempts to keep sadness from interfering, joy starts kind of inserting herself and, you know, her response is, I I don't know why I'm doing this. I, I, I just can't help it. And that, well, that's how sadness works. You can't help it. And um, the scene with um, the imaginary friend Bing Bong, where Bing Bong is starting to realize that, um, that Riley is forgetting about him. And he, they're, so basically Joy, Sadness, and Bing Bong are all together. They need to get back to like the helm, the, the, the captain, headquarters. The headquarters, the captain station of Riley's mind, and they have to take this special train to get there. And Bing Bong basically like gives up because he's really sad. He's having emotions, and Joy doesn't understand. She's like, "Come on, get with the program. We got to get on the train." And Bing Bong sits, and he's giving up. And sadness comes along and um, sits beside Bing Bong, and she comforts him, and she allows him to feel his feelings, and. And express his grief. And after he's done that, he feels better. And that's because sadness and crying is um, uh, something commonly associated with sadness. That releases um, really important uh, hormones, chemicals in our brain that allow us to process grief and emotion. Oh, think about how much better you feel after having a good cry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You and I were both like, this might be the most important scene in the movie. When yeah. She sits, when she sits down with Bing Bong. I think it was like a, a, yeah, a pivotal point in the movie where Joy starts to think, oh, maybe it's, maybe happiness is not all about constant positivity and denying anything negative. Yeah. That emotions are co- more complex than that. Exactly. And the segue, I told you after we watched it, I loved how 
the core memory of the hockey game had a blue swirl in it. And it kind of said like the only reason, because the, the, her, her memory of that was missing the game winning shot and being sad about it. And her parents came over and that was a sad moment, but then the team came over and cheered her on anyway. But that's parts only happy because you went through this sad part and had them swirl together. The core memory was swirled. You, you can get happiness from joy. Like things can, thing, feelings are complex, basically. Well, and I think, th- so they were about to lose that core memory or they had lost it when it was just one dimensional. In, in order for it to be really solidified in Riley's brain, it had to be multidimensional. That memory, that core memory included more than just joy. It included a lot of things, including sadness, fear, anger, things like that. And um, I think that leads to the, the, the last kind of lesson, which is that we should mindfully embrace rather than suppress tough emotions. So the other emotions um, in, in the movie are fear, anger, disgust, and then there's sadness, and then, of course, joy. So fear, anger, disgust, and sadness are more, you know, negative emotions, also very important emotions that um, play a role in shaping our personality and keeping us safe. In, the gift of fear. Yeah, exactly. We, we need fear. Um, we need anger. Absolutely. We need disgust. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, I think psychologists would um, recognize that Joy's behavior at, at trying to force everything to be positive, she's engaging in a risky behavior called emotional suppression, um, which is like an emotion regulating strategy that has been found to lead to anxiety and depression, which Riley starts to experience especially among teenagers um, whose grasp of their own emotions is still developing. So sure enough, trying to contain sadness and deny her role in the action ultimately backfires for Joy and for Riley. So there you go. Nice. Chelsea, do you have any questions? I was just going to ask if uh, of the five emotions of joy, sadness, fear, anger, and disgust, if uh, you think there could have been another one in there or would have traded out a different feeling? I think that uh, disgust I was a little bit confused by. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that disgust plays um, kind of revolt. Disgust uh, is an emotion. Um, I kind of see it as um, where we form our opinions off of yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But um, I also agree that it seems to be the one that's a little, um, it, it's the least obvious of right. the five L- to include. A l- little less easy to understand as being kind of a core emotion. And they personified her as, it's Mindy Kaling, right? And very uh, so, catty. And, I like uh, the eyelashes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lacey, you also really like the islands. Yeah, the islands of personality. So these concepts, which are presented as literal islands, kind of tethered to Riley's brain, they're named after um, the most important qualities that make Riley who she is at this point in her life. So there's family island, friendship island, goofball island, hockey island, and honesty island. Uh, I think in a particularly effective approach, when something interferes with the essential quality of these notions, the tethers 
to one or more of the island are destroyed and the islands themselves crumble and, and disappear. And so in the movie, the, the first to go is Goofball Island. It, recept, it, it represents Riley kind of at her silliest, um, her playful self. There's kind of images of her running around after Bath is a toddler, making monkey faces with her parents. And as she begins to evolve emotionally, she no longer displays that particular side of her personality. And as a result, Goofball Island goes, goes dark and falls into non-existence. Um, I think in part that kind of is saying that that's the result of, because at the end, islands come back, but they're multi-dimensional. They're not just all happy. They're, they're made up of all aspects of kind of multiple memories, not just necessarily happy memories or a joy is not the primary emotion in all of these uh, memories and um, kind of islands of personality. So they're more solidified. But another kind of interesting takeaway that I had was that um, I think that maybe adults watching this film will feel pangs of nostalgia as they recall kind of maybe for the first time in years which parts of their personalities have been lost along the way due to, you know, things like age and, you know, in environmental factors, obligation, just the growing up process changes us and we lose um, parts of our childhood, innocent parts of our personality. And yes, we evolve into much more multidimensional beings. Um, but we also we also lose some of our innocence and some of the, the beautiful aspects of our kind of childhood personalities. And I think it's important to be able to, to recognize that and reconnect with our inner child, as silly as that sounds. No, I think that's well said. I couldn't Chelsea, agree more. Any more yeah. thoughts, Chelsea? Um, I just, uh, everyone should see Soul as well, because I think it's a beautiful companion piece to this movie. I actually completely agree with yeah. you. I really do. Uh, I really liked Inside Out. I saw it at a drive through movie theater right after I moved up here. And uh, uh, 98% Rotten Tomatoes, no surprise. Uh, it won Best Animated Film that year and lost Best uh, Original Screenplay. Uh, so... I really like Inside Out. It moves really smooth. A lot of people you like. Amy Poehler, um, Phyllis, Mindy Kaling, Louis Black, Bill Hader. Uh, even um, the parents are Diane Lane and Kevin McLaughlin. I mean, that's it's really, really good Pixar movie all around. Mm -hmm. Lacey, I think you also had a lot of fun watching it. Oh, I loved it. Great. We're going to take a quick little break, and we'll be back with the last three movies. All right, so the next movie we're going to cover uh, is Silver Linings Playbook. I thought this was a pretty obvious choice. This is probably one of the two that we were like, no duh, we got to do this one. A lot of different mental health topics in this movie, depending on which character you're talking about. Um, pretty good movie. I, I, you know, I think it was the one that showed us all that Bradley Cooper was more than the guy in The Hangover and Wedding Crashers. And uh, uh, But uh, Lacey, talk a little more about why you picked this one and you know your thoughts on the depiction of their diagnoses in the movie well so i'll talk about what i liked and what i didn't like what i liked was that it was a story of hope um and so many stories depicting mental illness are, are ones that are filled with uh despair and not given a good ending so i did like that um bradley cooper's character is able to achieve 
what what we would call in like the mental health field a state of recovery. Now that's not to be um, equated to like a cure. He's he's maybe recovered or recovering, but not cured. He will never be cured. You can't cure bipolar disorder at this point. There is no cure for it. What I wasn't super just jazzed about, their depiction of his, like, manic episodes, that's, it was fine. I mean, it it wasn't too far off. Maybe it was a little more hypomanic, which is a less severe version, which um, I don't know that somebody displaying his symptoms would merit needing inpatient state hospitalization. I just didn't buy that. And it happened because he beat the crap out of uh, a man that he found his wife cheating with in the shower. But did he do that because of his mental illness? I don't think so. I was going to ask. Uh, I think a lot of people would have done that. Issue. Yeah. He, he maybe has anger issues. Maybe he is just a guy that flipped out. When he saw his wife cheating on him with a coworker, I also have a question for you guys about the cheating incident because the way the movie depicts it, uh, it almost seems like he imagined it. It was like, uh, right? Why is his wife showing up for the thing at the end? If, if that's how it all went down, I, I don't know. I thought that was odd. I and. And someone with bipolar disorder can have um, hallucinations. Is that correct, Lacey? Yeah, you can have bipolar. You can have psychosis. You mm-hmm. can have like, del- well, delusions and hallucinations, which are all uh, symptoms of psychosis with um, a severe uh, bout of bipolar disorder, like a severe epi- episode, excuse me. And paranoia can also be. Oh, yeah, uh, That's, that can be a hallmark in severe untreated bipolar disorder. Either way, I, I don't think it's um, a question of if he beat that man up. I think we can certainly say he did just based on the way everyone – I mean, why he was – why he went away and the way people re- respond to him when he comes back. But I do wonder if that shower scene was uh, – if it really played out the way they show in the movie or if that was perhaps, uh, yeah, uh, uh, something that he may have built up to be bigger in his mind than interesting. Really was. I did, hadn't even thought about it like that. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. So what about uh, Jennifer Lawrence? I think when we were watching the movie, the one thing that you confidently gave her was was depression. But was there anything else? And then how do you feel that she depicted these symptoms and oh, whatnot? She's, she's in grief. She's grieving. She's a mess. She's a hot mess. Um, she's very young. She lost her husband. She was maybe not the most stable person even before her husband died. Um, and she lost him and she, she really fell apart. She's got trauma that she's processing. I mean, having your husband die in a car accident is incredibly traumatic. So she's dealing with that in a, in like what we might consider a dysfunctional way. You know, she's sleeping with everyone. And um, getting a lot of judgment for that. She's just trying to cope. She's depressed. And then I think the more subtle one uh, in the movie, and we kind of talked about today, was Robert De Niro having OCD. Um, And I don't know. One thing I thought was cool I was looking at is, you know, he was very precise about where he put his TV remotes. And then at the end of the movie, 
they're in different places, ostensibly showing the viewer that maybe he's working on it. But I don't know. Did you pick up on that when we were watching it? I didn't pick up the the fact that it had gotten better at the end. I did notice that he was displaying some traits of OCD. Full-blown OCD is much, much, much more pervasive and destructive for a person. I know people with full-blown OCD and it consumes their life and it makes them miserable. Um, and you can't, it takes really intense treatment and medication therapy to be able to really get a hold on it in any, any way. So I didn't really buy the whole recovery piece with Robert De Niro. But you talked about his superstitions with the sports games. And oh stuff. yeah. There's actually there with OCD. That's, that's not too uncommon. We, see with actually a lot of sports fans who have um or people with OCD who are sports fans it can manifest as kind of obsession superstition over um you know uh sports you know statistics numbers um scoring and there can be a lot of superstition around that that um that can really consume a person right um any thoughts chelsea yeah i was gonna say um uh david o russell's um filmography i i feel that he often comes from a perspective of wanting to depict uh dysfunctional relationships and um i think he's kind of a dysfunctional person himself with a lot of anger issues uh based on uh what i've how i've heard he's treated some of his actors in the past um i still think he's really talented i think that he had an idea for how he wanted to show this family, Bradley Cooper's family, and then Jennifer Lawrence and her family um, as being like an average American dysfunctional family and kind of perhaps like with like giving Robert De Niro that OCD like and ha- and the way they show Bradley Cooper and how his bipolar manifests. I think he was trying to use mental health to really play into how it affects a dysfunctional family. And I think in some cases it really worked. Like what I really liked about it is like the way the mother, I think Jackie Weaver plays the mother and she very much. So I feel like wants everything to just be normal and everyone to just be happy. She's sort and, of the fixer. Mm-hmm. And then the brother, Bradley Cooper's brother, who's a bit aloof is just kind of uh, always, it seems like things have always come pretty easy to him and he's not really prepared to handle what his brother is going through either. But they all love each other at a base level. And um, I think the movie ends with Jennifer Lawrence like sitting on Bradley Cooper's lap in the, in the living room. Everyone's just kind of having like a joyous yet chaotic time. And I I really like that about it. I I but I do think that maybe mental health was mishandled uh, a little bit to drive that point home. Yeah, maybe a little bit. But I do agree with you. I I like uh, that they they I think they were trying to normalize it a little bit, and I do appreciate that um, because so many of us struggle with mental illness, including myself. So um, yeah, you do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So anyway, I think that it was a it was a beautiful love story. Um, it was a little bit like anti psychiatry, anti establishment, like um, 
in terms of like pulling him out of the state hospital, which he didn't qualify to be there anyway. So he didn't need to be there. But then also there is question of whether he's taking his meds or not. And Spencer insists that he is taking his meds, but he's okay. So it shows him at one point taking something in the movie. And then he says that he is taking medications, but he also said that he was taking medications early on in the movie. And it could have alluded to maybe he was lying. What I, what I wouldn't like is that is the story that, Oh, love, love cures all. Mm-hmm. And love will cure mental illness because sadly, while that's a really important aspect to recovery, not cure, um, you need medications in many cases, especially with bipolar disorder. You, most people cannot function without a mood stabilizing medication. Oh, and it's a relationship destroyer. Like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for all that. Um, on the movie side of things, uh, 74% Rotten Tomatoes, and I'm sure we all remember a lot of Oscar nominations. Um, it didn't win anything. It was up for Best Picture. David O. Russell up for Director. Uh, wait, Jennifer what am I, what am I talking about? Jennifer Lawrence won. What? I was confused, though, because she that was she was like on this streak, so I couldn't yeah, remember what am I talking she about? For. She won Best Lead Actress. I was looking at the wrong notes, everybody. My apologies. Uh, but it <laughs> How did, dare you? It did lose Best Picture. It did lose director. Bradley Cooper lost. Robert De Niro uh, and Jackie Weaver were up for supporting roles lost. Adapted screenplay and editing it lost as well. Um, I, it was a nice rewatch. Uh, it's it's a it's a nice movie. I mean, you know, not groundbreaking, but uh, it's a it's an enjoyable movie. Also, got to say, just side note, I'm a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan. All of those games actually happened, and it was a wonderful, wonderful season. We did kick the dog shit out of Dallas in the last game to go to the playoffs. Uh, and it fills me with glee that Robert De Niro is actually a Giants fan and he felt gross putting on Eagles gear. Suck it, Bob. I got to go to uh, I was in Philadelphia and I got to go to a tailgate um, in um, November of 2019. And I got to see that bus that's featured in in the movie. And everyone's like, it's a Silver Linings Playbook bus. <laughs> nice. OK, now these next two are going to be really interesting because they're both true stories. Uh, so our next one, uh, no surprise, we're going to cover a beautiful mind. Uh, I think when Lacey and I were getting our movies together, like this was the big no-brainer. This was the one like we're got to talk about uh, a beautiful mind. And I will say, I thought it was the one we didn't need to rewatch because I think you remember the the main points. But we did end up rewatching it, and I'm really glad that we did. Honestly, so so Lacey. Um, take it away. I don't know if you want to start with just how the movie depicted it. Did you want to talk at all about uh, the real guy or, or anything like that? Um, I don't know much. I haven't really researched the the person that the movie's based on. I, for the purposes of this podcast, will just talk about the movie. That's I fine. Love- I've got some tidbits about him okay. when you're done. I absolutely love A Beautiful Mind. I think that it is, um, it's actually, so NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, they uh, like endorsed this film because, um, for a number of reasons, it's a story of hope. It does not negatively depict him as being a, a dangerous, villainous character, such as in The Joker. He, he's a man with schizophrenia who suffers immensely you know, they may not have gotten everything right in terms of like how, what schizophrenia looks like. It, it looks different for 
most people, but they got a lot of things pretty spot on. And um, what I loved was that um, it showed how reco recovery, and this is kind of a theme for me, recovery not, recovered not cured, how recovery is possible with a number of factors, um, including family support, patient families that are with you for the long run, community integration, and that's more, we can talk more about like the deinstitutionalization um, movement, and that's more relevant to the, the next films that we'll talk about. But um, also um, just, you know, the importance of medication and um, the fact that somebody with schizophrenia can live a very meaningful, fulfilling life despite their illness. And it's not going to go away. Recovery doesn't mean it's gone. It means that it's being managed. He was still see having hallucinations about the um, the characters that you know were kind of popping up constantly, the, the regulars, and those didn't go away, not even at the end. And I liked that. Well, how how realistic was that, by the way? I mean. He's he's seeing a recurring roommate that doesn't exist over the years. He's seeing a shadowy federal agent that he's, you know, envisioning himself in a shootout car chase. I mean, was some of that exaggerated? I mean, can schizophrenic have that extensive of hallucinations? So someone with schizophrenia can, <clears throat> absolutely. So those, I mean, it was also, that was a combination of hallucinations and delusions, um, delusions are false beliefs about the world. So he was having a delusion that he was involved in uh, sort of like a, a spy super secret operation. Um, he was also having visual hallucinations. What's actually much more common with schizophrenia over visual hallucinations is auditory hallucinations, hearing voices, much more common. Uh, oftentimes they're uh, voices that can say things that are pretty mean. Um, they can really cut cut the the sufferer down. So the the voices, even though it's coming from your own brain, it you know that sounds like somebody else that is just um, tearing you apart. And that that by and large is what I've experienced working in acute inpatient mental health. Um, you can also have visual hallucinations. Everybody's experience is different, and I think maybe for the purposes of the movie having his hallucin hallucinations personified as these people was just easier to do for a film. And I get that. For sure. And we got to see Ed Harris, which but I always enjoyed. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the way More they impacted him, that's spot on. I, I was curious about how um, when we're introduced to, when we're meeting John Nash, he definitely is like socially awkward and um and seems to be a little stigmatized because of that and he also seems to have a very like uh uh high he holds himself in high esteem or high regard it seems like and he he thinks he's smarter than uh, almost everyone else he's going attending Princeton with and I'm curious um with your experience and background Lacey if you know if like the schizophrenia has anything to do with him believing that he's better than everyone else because I know about like delusions of grandeur. Yeah, he did seem grandiose. 
And I think my interpretation was that the symptoms had already started because they come on gradually. And he was, gosh, how old? This was grad school. Usually with men, schizophrenia symptoms start in late teens or early 20s. It can be a little bit outside of that age range, but not too far. So I'm going to assume that he was in his 20s, um, maybe mid-20s. And he most more than likely had already been experiencing more subtle symptoms. So the social awkwardness, uh, lack of social cues, that's very common. Um, and maybe there's some like protective factor to the to the you know grandiosity. That's actually pretty common. Um, but yeah, he 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 definitely seemed grandiose. I thought it was interesting that his um, the his imagined relationships with the Paul Bettany character, his roommate, the prodigal roommate returns, and and then uh, the Ed Harris uh, character who is who employed him in this secret spy mission that they, uh, at w- you know, one hand were always building him up and trying to tell him how much better he was than everyone else or how important his job was to like, with Ed Harris, he's telling him he's the, you know, the, the, the fate of the world relies on him. But then so quickly when things start to fall apart, what you were saying uh, what you've seen in a lot of schizophrenic cases, how that when they have auditory hallucinations, that they're often hearing um, really cutting and hurtful yeah. remarks. So I, um, really yeah. dis- distressing um, auditory hallucinations, voices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Not always, though. Sometimes they can be egosyntonic. Mm. Lots of times they're egodystonic. Um but egosyntonic delusions would be ones that would be m- more positive and, you know, um, s- supportive. Since this movie, at the heart of it, I think, has a real, like, love story to it, I was curious what you think about um, seeing a, a married uh, couple dealing with uh, a crisis like this and if you think that that was realistic or not. Um, I I thought it was – I loved it. Um I know in in reality they the couple does get divorced, but then they get remarried. Yep. Um, in the movie, um, they are they stay married, but they go through crises. I mean, I I think that Alicia is that her name, the wife. Mm-hmm. I think she almost leaves at several points, but I think that the movie. Um, it dispels a lot of myths about schizophrenia and then communicates a lot of truths, really important truths. Um, such as when, um, whenever people with schizophrenia are treated with dignity and respect, recovery is, is much more optimized. And then the vital role that social supports and, and family and tolerance plays in recovery and especially in regaining the capacity to work productively. So, also, I really love that um, they really drive home that there is good reason to have faith and hope. So Alicia, um, Alicia Nash in the movie, she says something along the lines of, you know, I need to believe that something extraordinary mm-hmm. is possible. I love that line. Yeah. And so, like for so many families today, extraordinary things are happening when access to appropriate care is available. And, you know, the hope continues to be that you know 
as research continues, you know, there, there will be better treatments for schizophrenia, possibly a cure, possibly not, but um, better treatments there. We've come so far since our treatment uh, methods in like the 1960s where we would just lock people up. So also um, the vital role of medications in treating symptoms is um, presented in the movie. So it, it kind of goes over the, you know, the, the role of medications and the risks of discontinuing medications. Um, in the movie, when he stops his meds, the delusions and hallucinations return with a vengeance. Um, then he, he stops taking them and he's trying to control the symptoms with his mind. And he's, he clearly is, is struggling. And um, a lot of people are not able to manage their symptoms without medications. But um, back when he was first um, receiving treatment, there were only the old school antipsychotics available. And those were horrible medications, things like uh, Thorazine, uh, Haldol, which really dull so many aspects of a person's personality. You lose your drive. You lose your motivation. You... Um, you feel kind of like you're a lot of a lot of my patients described it as feeling like you're underwater you're you're numbed and it's a miserable way to live now um there's a new sort of generation of antipsychotics drugs called atypical antipsychotics and the movie does discuss that in um later on he takes newer medications but even then and I think this is important. The symptoms are not gone. Mm. They're just better managed. And he's learning to live with them. You know, like at the very the very end, a scene where um, the man who's uh, initially uh, approaches him about the Nobel Prize. Oh, I love that scene. Comes up and, oh. and he asks one of his students, do you see this man? <laughs> and that's his way it's of checking. So I used to. Cute. I used to have this um, patient I worked with in community mental health. Um, with schizophrenia, wonderful man. Um, he he used to hear like the worst voices, and he didn't. They were like voices of people he knew, and so he would come to me and he'd say, "Lacey, did you tell me that I should go kill myself? Did you tell me that I'm a horrible person?" And I would of course say, "No, I didn't say that." That was his way of, of kind of checking. He and he always needed to check with me, and I was working with him on maybe learning to like not have to check to trust that yes that that was a hallucination i wouldn't say something like that but um yeah you do develop techniques yeah i mean based on all the things you told me especially when watching it sounds like they did a pretty good job from what i read about the real john nash i don't know that he was seeing the characters we saw in the movie but uh he did think he could communicate communicate with aliens and uh, anybody who wore red tie was a communist, and he was very suspicious of them. Yeah, lots of government stuff. Lots of government stuff. So and that's that's super common with uh, psychosis. Yeah. So as a movie, I mean, I think we know it got a lot of prestige that year. Seventy four percent Rotten Tomatoes, um, and uh, or that's where I messed up earlier with Silver Linings. Silver Linings was ninety two percent. Oh, beautiful, beautiful mind got it one Best Picture. Ron Howard won Best Director, which I think was kind of a you should have one by now, Ron. Here you go. It won Best Adapted Screenplay, and Jennifer Connelly won Best Supporting Actress. Uh, Russell Crowe lost, film editing lost, makeup and the score lost. Uh, James, I think James Howard did the score for that. Uh, by the way, revisiting that, Jennifer Connelly, mm, 
don't really know why she won that award. Oh. She's fine in the movie. I think Helen Mirren probably should have got it for Gosford Park. Mm, I have not seen that movie. So I get, um, yeah, Jennifer Connelly, I thought. What she, did she do that someone else couldn't have done that warranted an Oscar win? I, I think that was a, here you go, Jennifer, you should have had one. I think she has a real kind of, um, I think she's got like a feistiness to her that made it believable that she could find um, uh, uh, Russell Crowe like sexy and find something about him that they could connect on. Um, I, I, yeah, I, the role of the wife is sometimes a little empty and I think she did what she could with that. She I, really yeah. made a lot of the movie for me actually. Mm-hmm. Um, She's fine. I just don't know. I don't know if she should have won that over a couple I, other women that were nominated that year. I mean, sure. I maybe, but I Helen Mirren had just got one a couple years prior. I think you know. I think that she made it believable. the The struggle of the family member who is trying to, who is driven to support her husband who she loves, sure. but is just drowning. Sure. I think she portrays that in a in a really believable way. She's a good actress. Jennifer Connelly, really great in House of Sand and Fog. She's Dark City. Dark City is a dope movie if you've never mm-hmm. seen it. Um, all right, moving on to the last film, which I'm excited about. I think this is the most interesting one. Uh, Lacey picked this. She's read the book, and I think that uh, people probably won't see this one coming. We're going to do Girl Interrupted. Uh, I think the 1999 film dress- directed by James Mangold, who's gone on to direct Walk the Lion, Logan, and Ford versus Ferrari. Um, you know, Lacey, just have at it. You read this book. You really like this movie. Please go on. I mean, I love the book. I like the movie is mm. more what I, I think that's say. fair. Yeah. Um, so I was going to, I wanted to choose a movie about institutionalization and it was, bet- it was that, um, or one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And I liked, I liked that this movie had females in the the leading roles um i i that's really what it came down to in terms i think of i also said I to you that. i think i said to you i like that you picked that i agree about the all-female roles but girl interrupted much more directly addresses what these people's diagnoses are and cuckoo's nest doesn't really like half the people in cuckoo's nest like don't really seem like they need to be there well i think that was kind of the point they didn't this was during the era of institutionalization where you you and you know everyone and their dog got locked up it was so easy to institutionalize someone there were all sorts of mental hospitals really horrible places by the way um people were abused mistreated locked there and not yeah, and, and they were lobotomized. Um, really sad. So, Girl Interrupted is also set in the in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Correct. Still during the era of institutionalization, um, where the treatment consists of inpatient hospitalization for an extended period. Um, they didn't have really great drugs back then. Re- not at all. Their um, their medication op- options kind of consisted of things like Thorazine to like settle a patient down. Um, yeah, they had lithium because that's been around forever and that's still very used today. But there just weren't very good treatment options back then. And there were a lot of abuses that happened in um, like mental health 
uh, hospitals. Asylums is what they referred to them as. Um, interesting that um, the Susanna, the main character, her diagnosis is borderline personality disorder. I personally don't see that in her character. Okay, so she had a um, suicide attempt that she is downplaying. She's maybe, you know, she's described as being sexually promiscuous. She's also, what, 18? I think she's a little older than that, but somewhere okay. around there, 18, yeah. 18, 20, yeah. young, still developing, and um, going through a transition. It's High school is ending. Everybody's going off to college. She's not. She's struggling with kind of what to do next. And she she is kind of preoccupied with death. Um, a little bit, and she does end up um, getting really drunk and taking a bunch of pills, and then en ending up at the hospital. And after that, she um, she's admitted to McLean, a really really famous um, psych hospital out in New England somewhere, Boston. It seems like it's somewhere near the Boston area. Yeah, Boston. Yeah. I think anyway, it's actually a fabulous hospital today uh it's it's one of the fancier ones i should say that that is not a state hospital that is a private um hospital it still exists today they do provide really excellent treatment but um they did accurately show like that it was not a state hospital that these women were in. And Whoopi Goldberg's character, I think, even yes, makes that's a point right. of saying, you don't know how good you have it here. I've worked it's in true. state hospitals and this is... Uh, state hospitals yeah. were horrible. Um, so many abuses, including the Oregon State Hospital, one of the most notorious of all of them. Um, that is where One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was filmed. And horrible things happened there. So many abuses, so many unethical procedures, lots of lobotomies, lots of people died there. They have a basement at the Oregon State Hospital, basically filled with people's remains, mm -hmm. ashes, unclaimed remains of all the like souls that died there. So it's really sad. But in the 80s came the deinstitutionalization movement and they started shutting down, and it was deinstitutionalization slash community, community reintegration movements where they started shutting down the hospitals. They realized that treatment happens better in the community when somebody's integrated into the community. That's very true. In practice, it hasn't rolled out all that well because uh, we're, you know, 40 years down the road, we're seeing community mental health uh, really really miss a lot of folks and struggle to meet, you know, meet the needs of, of folks, especially in terms of housing. Now, instead of seeing our mentally ill in hospitals, we generally see them on the street, mm -hmm. um, which is, which is tragic. So back to the movie. Sorry, I got off on a tangent there. An important tangent. Um, I think that Susanna is depressed. I think that she is struggling with identity and uh, personality. She's struggling because there was a much older man. Was it one of her teachers? I think he was a friend of the family or, or something. Or a friend of the family. So I think she's like right around 18 because everybody else is going off to college. Yeah, it's 18, 19, 20, somewhere around there. Yeah, so much older man 
clearly taking advantage of her. She's confused. I mean, I could go go so far as to call, you know, he took advantage slash, you know, maybe he raped her. In the book, it was a little bit more of a, um, it, it felt a little bit more like she was taken advantage of. And he she really gets- forces himself on her in that when they're having the party in the yeah. house and she's in her bedroom and he's like insistent on them so getting she's together. Got, yeah, she's definitely got some trauma. She's got some stuff to work through. She gets sent to the hospital and gets sucked into the life of, of, of kind of the, the institution. And um, it's really interesting as you get to get to know all of the characters, the players, namely the um, very notable uh, Angelina Jolie's character, who I think she won an Oscar for that performance. She absolutely did. You're jumping ahead. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Giving things away. I was going to ask if you think that she she belonged there with the general population of uh, I'm just, yeah, really so, curious what you think was going on with her. Yeah, what we know today about um, personality disorders is that they do not respond well to inpatient hospitalization. If if you're going to treat somebody in the hospital who, let's say, somebody with a personality disorder had a suicide attempt, you want a super, super brief inpatient hospitalization followed by intensive outpatient treatment outpatient being the operative term um people uh when you when you hospitalize someone with a personality disorder over any sort of an extended period they get worse and that's what happened to angelina jolie that's what happened to Susanna. although i still question whether or not she fits a borderline personality diagnosis i just didn't see it i have worked with so many um people with that diagnosis and she was not displaying most of the traits. Well, as you said, it was the early days uh, of diagnosing those things. And yeah. And also there's a gender bias. So women are often, you know, diagnosed with this um, diagnosis, borderline personality disorder, disorder, which is very essentially like hysteria. It's, it's like, promiscuity um it's an old school diagnosis that is oh over diagnosed uh for women under diagnosed for men and um interestingly enough antisocial personality disorder is disproportionately um diagnosed in men and very few women are given that diagnosis so i thought it was interesting that angelina jolina jolie had that diagnosis it seemed to fit for Angelina. What do you think of uh, Brittany Murphy's character and her performance oh in the movie? Gosh. I was I'm like devastated by her story. I, I see a girl who is, gosh, just being failed on all fronts by the the systems that are trying to help her, um, and then she's so vulnerable. Doesn't take much for Angelina to drive her to a point of suicide yeah it it i was not surprised i mean i i knew that was gonna happen really sad i see trauma being the underlying factor in her um kind of mental illness uh clearly there's there sounds like there's some incest going on 
um, and probably sexual abuse for a long time. Um, she has severe OCD. I was very touched by um, when Susanna, when Winona Ryder comes back to uh, the institution and is talking to Whoopi Goldberg and is having her breakdown and is saying, like, I should have done more. Like, what kind of a person am I that I just went – I lay, I didn't go check on her after um, Lisa yeah. attacked – you know, verbally attacked her. Yeah. And, but, and then Whoopi says, well, what would you have said? And I think she said something like, I would have just told her I, I don't know what it – I think something like, I don't know what it's like, what you're going through, but I'm sorry. And I think sometimes that in a messed up way, what Lisa, what Angelina Jolie was doing was, I see you, I see what you're going through and you're not acknowledging and she, but because she wasn't sensitive enough to be able to do it in the right way, just bluntly told her. Whereas I think that like Susanna or Winona Ryder was recognizing like she needed someone to say what's happening to you isn't right. And isn't your fault. Yeah. And it's not your fault. And I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. A really tragic character, I think. Lisa, you read the book and you read the book before the movie came out and the book is nonfiction. This is really this person's account of, you know, her experience Mm -hmm. with, with the story what were, were there any major differences? Surely some of the stuff was sensationalized for the movie. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, like Angelina Jolie's character did not really push someone to suicide in the book, right? I don't believe so. It's been about 10 years since I read it. Um, I think that there there was Angelina Jolie's character and um, they they sort of, they, there's a collusion there uh, between Susanna and... Um, what is Angelina Jolie's character's I name? Think it's Lisa. Lisa, Lisa. I think yeah. Susanna, and Elisa develop a bond that really prevents Susanna from being able to work on herself and and treatment. Um, and that scene with Brittany Murphy's character is a turning point for Susanna, where she realizes that Angelina Jolie is toxic for her, and she really starts taking treatment seriously. And lo and behold, she's able to get better because, I mean, it. she's struggling with some very fixable things, very treatable things. And she does. And then she's able to discharge. She's there way too long. She she risks kind of runs the risk of, of becoming institutionalized and kind of flirts with that for a little while um, before realizing, no, that's not for me. And I'm going to participate in treatment and get out of here perfect well uh as a movie itself it's okay Uh, i mean it's certainly watchable i think there's some pacing problems um overall though i think most of the acting's good um of course a 53 percent rotten tomatoes and as we said angelina jolie did win her only oscar for supporting actress for the film which going back into the movie it's been a long time since i've seen it i was kind of like going did she deserve that yes she did she was really, really, really good in that movie, uh, in my opinion. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg, also really good at the movie. So. Absolutely, yeah. And for, I think Brittany Murphy should have been nominated for something, too. She was always really good, and what a loss. Um, but yeah, wa- certainly a watchable movie, You know, especially if you're interested in this topic. I say give it, give it a go. All right. Lacey, this was a lot of fun, and you gave us a lot of really great information, and I know people are going to be really interested in listening to this. Oh, thanks. I enjoyed being a part of this. Great. Thank you, Lacey. Well, we're going to close out with the recommendations. 
as we do every episode. Uh, and Lacey, just for you or anybody listening that uh, maybe if this is their first episode, listen, we give a recommendation and we have a one, two, three scale. Three is go see this movie. Two is you can get around to it, but you should see it. And one is watch at your own risk uh, or just avoid it. So Chelsea, if you'd like to take it away. Yes. Oh, I'm so excited to talk about this movie. It is called The Nest. It came out last year. It it stars Jude Law and Carrie Coon. And it's directed by Sean Durkin. Um, uh, He directed Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene uh, with Elizabeth Olsen. I have not seen that movie, but it's on my list. Um, And I think that uh, he is a director to really look out for. I I really want to rewatch The Nest. Like I can't wait <laughs> to watch it again. Um it um it's set around uh Jude Law. It's in set in the 80s. Jude Law has moved to the United States, met Carrie Coon, started a family with her. He um becomes a stepfather to her daughter and then they have a son together. And um in the background of the whole story of, of this family story, we're talking about like looking at themes of like 80s greed and excess. And um, I there's also a very like haunting um, element when the family relocates to England. And um, it, it uh, I don't want to say too much more because it, it's there's a lot of layers to the movie. And I don't want to spoil much, but I think it's a great mood piece. Um, it's beautifully shot, really well acted. And, um, the actress, her name is Una Roche. Um, she plays the daughter and I think she gives a really, um, there's, there's a moment in the movie, uh, a scene in the movie where I, I'm, you can't take your eyes off her. And I think she's going to be a really interesting talent too. I hope she goes on to do more things. So I wholeheartedly give this movie a three, like really seek it out. And, um, again, it's called The Nest. Thank you, Chelsea. Uh, Lacey, you are also going to give us a recommendation because uh, we made you guest or no guest. Yeah, so I'm being forced to give a recommendation. <laughs> and so I am choosing a movie just that I randomly rewatched recently and forgot how much I loved it. Also, just a super rewatchable movie, Castaway with uh, Tom Hanks. Um, really enjoyable movie. Overall, I I loved it. Um, we want to talk about the mental health piece a little bit since that's kind of my bag, my jam. Um, no way, no way in hell. While I love the movie, there is no way in hell that somebody could survive for four years on an island in isolation without going completely insane and just con- completely losing their mind. You know, once he was rescued, he would have ended up needing to be hospitalized. Or, or maybe like he would have been like catatonic or wouldn't have been able to adjust to, to society again. He maybe would have like needed to like sleep outside. Yeah, in like a live cave in the woods or something. Or something. Yeah. yeah. And, and like fish. Like the fact that he was just like thrown into, you know, all, all of these like c- celebrations, I, it wasn't believable, but who cares? It was a really enjoyable movie. And uh, I would give it a three as far as watchability. It's a fun movie. I really, really like the ending. Um, yeah, the ending's great. The score is so awesome in just the most unique way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely. Good recommendation, Lace. 
Great uh, plane crash scene too. Great plane yeah. crash. Oh great yeah, maybe one scene. of the best yeah. plane crash yeah. scenes. Definitely like top three for sure. Um, okay, my recommendation, I'm going to keep in line with the uh, mental health, pulling it in my grab bag of movies I've watched recently. Uh, it's a 2003 movie called Identity. Now, I remember seeing trailers and commercials for this, and it's like John Cusack, Ray Liotta, Amanda Peet, like all of these like people you recognize. I'm not even naming all of them. And I just remember thinking, that looks cool, and it's like a thriller, creepy movie, and all these people end up uh, at a motel for various reasons, but they start to find out they have things in common. And there's an underlying story, too, about a trial that's already ended with some maniacal killer. And the trailer looks so intriguing. I'm like, I like all these people, and the reviews are really bad. And so it took me a long time to go, I'll get around to it. I love John Cusack. And I finally watched it, and it is really not good at all. The critics were right. It's uh, it's bad. And uh, it does have tie-ins to mental health. And uh, uh, I don't want to give it away, though, because... There is a twist. There's a couple twists, but there's one big twist involving mental health. Um, and even though I'm going to give this movie a, it's a, it's a one. You watch this at your own risk. It's, it's not like terrible, but it's not good. Uh, but if you're interested in this stuff, you want to see a movie with a twist. Uh, if you want to see mental health displayed in the wrong way, check out Identity. If you just like, you know, twisty movies. Right on. Cool. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode. Um, Lacey, thank you so much for doing this with us. Yeah, thank you. And uh, Chelsea, I think we've got an episode coming up at, pretty soon after this one. I don't think we've nailed down what it's going to be, but if it's what we've been talking about, I think it's going to be a really, really fun episode. Hold on to your butts. Hold on to your butts. Uh, this has been going really well, and I just want to say um, it's a lot easier to do things like this when you have amazing people around and Lacey, thank you for supporting me. And Chelsea, you've been on board since day one. We had this idea. You never hemmed and hawed. You were like, let's do this. I already own a microphone. Uh, and we have other very talented, generous friends who have helped us make this podcast happen. So you know who you are. Thank you very much. Uh, but we will be back very soon. So for the Marquee Spotlight, I am Spencer Bailey. I'm Chelsea Burnett. We'll see you. Thank you for listening. The Marquee Spotlight is recorded in Portland, Oregon. Music composed and produced by Josh Colopy and cover art created by Taylor Engel. Check us out on Twitter for updates regarding new episodes and listen to episodes anywhere podcasts are found.